0: Um, it's good to be together again. Hopefully you guys did uh, enjoy last week for those that were able to come out to our Praxis Welcome Dinner. And that also signifies that this week we are starting a new season of small groups as well as returning to our exposition of the book of Romans. So for the summer we had more of a topical study through the book of Proverbs looking at various uh, subject matters and how god's wisdom applies um, to very practical ways in which we live as believers but now we turn back to um, kind of the book we've been studying for quite a while now and we are going to continue our study of the book of romans and this is a good practice to be in uh, to have a steady diet of scripture it grounds us not only in um, the truth of god's word but how to study the Bible. gives us a robust understanding of a book, and that helps us by making us well-rounded Christians so we aren't just cherry-picking our favorite passages or our hobby horses. So tonight, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn in them to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8, Romans chapter 4. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we will invite the Lord's help through prayer. Romans chapter 4, beginning verse 1. This is the Word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. God, we come as beggars asking that you would feed and nourish our souls, that you would open our eyes to behold the splendor of Christ, the magnificence of the gospel, that we can be reconciled to you And it's not something we merit or do to deserve uh, your forgiveness, but it is surely by grace through faith. Lord, we pray that you would quicken our hearts to receive your word with gladness, that you would bruise our ego, that we would be humble and bow before the King of kings, just as we have sung, that we would delight in him. And so, God, we pray that you would prune our hearts that our hearts would be fertile soil, that your word would be planted deep within, that we might bear fruit for our joy and for your glory. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we begin um, ripping apart our text, I want you to put on your detective caps and figure out what's wrong with the following scenarios. You walk out of Best Buy with a a 65-inch TV before you pay for it. You jump out of an airplane, and then you put on your parachute. You turn in your two weeks' notice when you haven't received an offer yet. You propose to the girl on your first date. What do all these situations have in common? Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to recognize how things can get interesting and very dangerous when done out of order, when you get it backwards. And I believe this is often the case when it comes to the gospel, both in our conception, our understanding of salvation, as well as how we might live as Christians, as followers of Christ. Intentional or not, we can easily mix up the order of faith and works. Faith and works. Now, both are essential, according to the Word. But things get interesting and very dangerous when we get the sequence wrong, when we attempt to earn a right standing before holy God, a workspace righteousness. And it's not surprising, because this is kind of the atmosphere we were raised in, the air we breathe in from a young age. If you want to be a good student, what do you do? Well, you stay up late, study hard, get that a if you want to be a good musician you hone your craft you practice your skills you perform well at your recital if you want to be a good child well you do your chores you speak with respect you treat your sibling nicely it's been hammered into us drilled until we know it through and through a good person A good person earns his keep. A good person proves his worth. So then, when it comes to the matters of faith, we can import this mentality and adopt the same approach into our relationship, our view of God. And we think to ourselves, well, if I want to be a good Christian, it entails showing up to church, reading the Bible, praying before meals, And these practices, don't get me wrong, aren't necessarily bad, but we need the correct sequence. We need to understand the right order. That faith, faith is the root, and our works are the fruit. One follows the other. We believe in Jesus, and therefore we behave differently. And we trust in Him and that leads to transformation. Problems arise when we get it backwards. You see, a lot of our confusion and frustration in the Christian life is owing to trying to work for our salvation instead of working out our salvation. You see the difference? A lot of our confusion Frustration and problems in the Christian life is a result of trying to work for our salvation instead of working out our salvation. And according to the Bible, faith is primary. Faith comes first. We are declared righteous by God when we repent from our sins and throw ourselves upon Jesus Christ. We believe in His life, death, and resurrection as payment for our sins and grounds for our salvation. So hear me clearly. We are justified by faith alone. But this kind of faith, a true, authentic, genuine faith, never comes alone. Works are in tow. Works are right around the corner. That Those saved by Christ start to become like Him. It's that famous verse we know in Ephesians. Ephesians 2 Eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And we do our disservice by stopping there, because that's not where the story ends. If you read on in verse 10 it says, "For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." And that summarizes kind of what we will see tonight. This is the dynamic that Paul addresses in our passage. He wants to set the record straight. He elaborates on how faith precedes work, not the other way around. Now, it's been a while since we were last in the book of Romans, so a brief crash course to bring us up to speed, especially if you weren't part of our study. But Paul's great thesis for his greatest letter is laid out for us in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he pens there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The apostle begins by rendering all of humanity culpable. Before we are ever deemed righteous, we must admit and acknowledge that we are unrighteous. Only sinners need saving. It's logical. And so Paul masterfully indicts everyone in chapter 1. He plumbs the depth of our depravity by revealing how we all universally suppress the truth, that our natural inclination, our sinful bent, is idolatry. We serve ourselves and exchange the truth about God for our own truths, our own desires. And the condemnation is sweeping. But lest the Jews think that they are excluded, the Apostle Paul exposes their hypocrisy in Romans 2. Though privileged in the Old Testament to be the very people of God, they had missed the whole point. They had used God's law as a ladder to prop themselves up over all the rest. And they puffed up their chest and said, Look at us. We are awesome. We have God's commandments. We have religious customs. We have circumcision. But shallow conformity and symbols are empty without what is significant a heart devoted to God. Chapter 3, the apostle wraps it up in his closing argument. It says, Jews and Greeks, all are guilty. None is righteous. Paul isn't just serving up a slice of humble pie. He is stuffing the whole thing down our throats. And when every mouth is shut, when every excuse foiled, when our faithlessness exposed, Then we're ready. Then we are ready to put our faith outside of ourselves and we look to another. And this is the major turning point we left off at, that yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it's to prepare the way for something else. Romans 3, verse 24, justification by His grace to prime us for someone better. Redemption in Christ Jesus. And Paul now takes this wonderful revelation that we are justified by his grace, by faith, and he begins to unpack all the splendors of this amazing truth in chapter 4. And this topic, this subject matter, arrests his attention. It preoccupies him all the way to the end of Romans 6. But our passage tonight starts the dialogue, and Paul will discuss three points when it comes to justification by faith. He will provide for us the blueprint of faith, the betterment of faith, and the blessing of faith. First, the blueprint of faith, the blueprint of faith. Look again at verse 1. Paul writes, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, to jog our memory and to present a test case for his hypothesis, Paul kicks off this new section with a rhetorical question. He's going to prove justification by faith through a person, by looking at the life of an individual. We are asked to consider a prominent figure, the esteemed and beloved Jewish patriarch, Abraham. Abraham. And there are few Old Testament saints as revered as this father figure. I mean, some of you, Asians, Caucasians, but as far as I can tell, unless you have a secret, uh, all of us are non-Jews here, and yet some of you grew up in the church singing about Father Abraham. Even today, kids still bear his name, not so much the other characters of the Bible like Job, Hezekiah, or Mephibosheth. Paul has us ponder why Abraham was held in such high regard. And for us, maybe our minds drift towards these incredible events and accomplishments in his life that we read about in the Old Testament. We think about how he was the progenitor of the Hebrews, this man that's called and commissioned by God, and and God creates a people for himself through Abraham's line, the people of Israel. How Abraham calculated the risk leaving his home country. All that he's ever known to embark on this scary adventure. A trailblazer of sorts. Or maybe if we're acquainted with the scriptures we might admire the heroics of Abraham. How he chased after and defeated four foreign kings to rescue his nephew Lot. But my bet is for us The most remarkable and memorable incident is what took place on a mountain, Mount Moriah. In Genesis 22, we marvel at Abraham's great obedience and courage in his willingness to sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac. Abraham's resume is surely impressive. If there was anyone evaluated according to the flesh, anyone judged by their life achievements and accolades, who was deserving of success and recognition, it would probably be Abraham. Like the savvy entrepreneur or diligent executive, prosperity and praise come to those who earn it. And certainly in comparison to others, Abraham had a captivating highlight reel. But Paul reminds us the context of the conversation. We're talking about justification. And when God enters the picture, well, Abraham is put in his proper place. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. That's the game-changer before God. Notice, Paul is already showing his hand, revealing his tell. He hints, if Abraham was justified by works, so as to suggest he's not, so as to set forward an alternative, that Paul will promote a justification apart from works, just like how the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law back in Romans 3.21. There are no grounds for boasting because for all of Abraham's mighty works, there's no comparing with God and his. No one wins in that game. Instead, Paul discloses the truth about Abraham's justification. It was not secured through human effort, but divine faith. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, his belief in God, counted to him as righteousness. Paul, the apostle, connects the dots for us. Abraham's justification was not from his military prowess to deliver lots or his bravery to sacrifice Isaac. Paul pinpoints the moment of justification. It was when he believed. The apostle here references Genesis 15, verse 6, a seminal verse in our Bibles. For context's sake, this is after God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to multiply his offspring until they are so vast it would be as impossible to number them as the manifold stars scattered throughout the sky. But at this juncture in time, what did Abraham have to show for his progeny, for his vast, numerous descendants. Well, if you interviewed him, he would tell you, I don't even have a single son. In fact, the current heir to all of his possessions would be someone outside of his biological family, a servant boy, Eleazar of Damascus. Imagine how big of a laughingstock Abraham would be if he was trying to convince others of his patriarchal future, of his big lineage, it'd be like if I told you, hey, I'm going to be a social media influencer. I'm going to be Instagram famous. And so you would question, like, oh, that's cool. How many followers do you currently have? And I told you I have one, my mom. That would be sad, right? You would have a hard time believing me. And yet, despite being childless, Abraham is a believer. Not because he suffers from delusions of grandeur. Not because he's out of touch with reality. No, but because of the one he believes in. His faith isn't in himself. His faith is in God to do the impossible. For God to do what he does best. Perform miracles. Abraham believes. And in that decisive moment, it's obvious his faith is in God and it's instantaneous he is counted righteous counted in some of your translations you might have reckoned and I like that reckoned it's the same idea it's a bit archaic but there is a weightiness to that word it's a technical term I mean if you say it it just evokes this uh, formal feeling right this stamp of approval. And that's precisely what Paul intends. I mean, if you scan our passage, counted shows up a number of times, I think five or six times. It's his main point here. This is a judicial word, a legal declaration that at this specific moment of faith, Abraham is counted, reckoned, declared as righteous. And there is no etc. This is sola fide, faith alone. And yet, I think that's why we find faith so difficult. Because we don't do anything but believe. Control is taken outside of our, our grip. And it's so plain we find it offensive. We want to participate in our justification, in proving our worth, in demonstrating that we are worthy so we can share in the spotlight. But faith has a stand off stage. You see, Abraham's faith wasn't in how capable or incapable he was in fulfilling this promise, but in God's faithfulness to God's promise. This is a faith that ultimately trusts instead of trying. A faith that isn't about doing, but believing. Genesis 15-6 is the first time in the Bible where belief is tied to righteousness, Abraham was justified by faith regardless of his work, great or bad. Because let's be honest, for all of his bright moments, Abraham was not without foolish ones. I mean, you read the account, out of fear he tried to pass off Sarah, his beautiful wife, as his sister so that he wouldn't be killed off and Sarah made available for the taking. I I, I don't have to explain this to you, hopefully. We don't cover this in premarital counseling here at Lighthouse because it's just common sense. You don't do this. Your marriage will not last a long time if you're telling people your wife is your sister. There are going to be a lot of questions. But Abraham, if you read the Scriptures, he doesn't just do this once. He is a fool. He does it two times. He was a bad boy. (laughs) And listen, if Abraham can be justified if this doesn't preclude him, then I think it's safe to say there's hope for the rest of us. And by faith, we too can be counted righteous, regardless of the good, bad, and ugly that we bring to the table. Justification by faith is not some novel concept or plan B. It's been God's strategy from the beginning, and Abraham is the blueprint of this. Well, with the blueprint drawn, The apostle, Paul, builds out his argument by showing us how faith-based justification is better than a works-based righteousness. And so we arrive at our second point, the betterment of faith. The betterment of faith. So if we still remain unconvinced of this way of doing things, of this method that God has ordained, the apostle now reveals the folly of trying to earn our justification. Verse 4, he continues, now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as, he, as his due. Uh, I don't want to cause any of you to stumble and covet, but my first job ever was at Bed Bath and Beyond. I know it's only downhill from there. But I was privileged to wear a glorious purple apron, wield a fancy uh, price gun and I worked tirelessly my first week. And then I quit, because I found another job that paid more. And though I was only there at Bed Bath Beyond for a handful of shifts, I still expected something on my last day. And it wasn't much, but I expected to be paid. When the check was brought and issued in my name, it's not like I was surprised or floored by their generosity, like, oh, how kind, you shouldn't have. No, bed, bath, beyond, you should. Despite logging a few hours, it was mine. My work, my wages, it's what I had earned. And we get this concept. Wages are what you work for. A gift is not. The two are diametrically opposed. Because a gift, by very definition, is not something you earn, it is given to you. In fact, the moment you try to earn it, it ceases to be a gift. It destroys it. And yet often, we can approach and relate to God as if He's this boss we're trying to convince on why we should get a promotion rather than a kind, generous Father who delights to lavish us with gifts. We talk to God like we're brokering some sort of business deal Hey, God, God, this is why I deserve to go to heaven. You'll be lucky to have me. I've gone on multiple missions trips. I don't cuss. I serve and give to the church. I even know the doctrines of grace. And we are so silly in how we attempt to earn our righteousness and justify ourselves before a holy God. We try harder, do better, robe ourselves in religious activity. But when we do, we forget the underlying issue, the real problem. We forget the depravity within. When we do, we overlook the first three chapters of the book of Romans. That it's not just about our good outweighing our bad. It's the very fact that we have bad at all. That we're blemished spoiled you see we aren't working as innocent and good employees to curry god's graces we are crooked rebels think of a criminal a criminal might labor with all his intellect his strength and skills he might be super responsible efficient and diligent he might even be kind to his colleagues and work well with others but he does so To break into the bank. His best efforts don't just fall short. His works merit punishment. The paycheck he is owed is jail time, and so the same for sinners. This is why Paul will eventually summarize, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul proposes a better way. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. As one scholar put it, working involves doing, while the genius of belief is receiving. So Paul has shown us these two principles, two options, one choice. You put your hand to earn a wage in vain, or by faith, you open your hand to receive a gift. It's like that hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Our work, our work leads to death. God's work leads to life. And he is willing, eager to gift you the wages of Christ. We appropriate his salvific work on the cross. We receive this blessed gift by believing him who justifies the ungodly. And this is good news. But it is only good if you are willing to receive the bad news first. Because did you pick up on that key word? Ungodly ungodly and we must confess that we are ungodly unrighteous sinners and we're so used to talking about this we might not find that shocking but paul's readers would after all these are people who venerated abraham it'd be like if i said to you kobe sucked at basketball or ryan gosling is ugly It's like blasphemous, right? Or if I told you, hey, Pastor Kim, he's ungodly. Now, don't take my words out of context and get me in trouble, but it helps us realize how hard Paul's words would hit. From Abraham to Judas, Mother Teresa to Osama bin Laden, none of us are exempt. We're all ungodly. But therein lies our hope also. Abraham is not the goal, not the standard, not the benchmark. We back up and peer, of not at the forefather of Israel, but at a heavenly father who justifies the ungodly, who gifts salvation to those who don't deserve it, but those who believe, who turn from their sins and profess faith in Christ. Paul now highlights another candidate to strengthen his teaching and reinforce how faith is better than works, uh, working for justification. Our last point for tonight, the blessing of faith. The blessing of faith. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. We'll stop there. The Apostle Paul does another throwback to make his case airtight and seal the deal. He calls another Old Testament luminary to the witness stand, David. David, the man after God's own heart. And Abraham and David, these two function like bookends for us. Abraham is featured for his faith before the Mosaic law was given to show us justification happens apart from work. And David now is referenced also for his faith after the Mosaic law is given to show us justification still happens apart from work. Now up to this point, Paul has framed the discussion, justification by faith, as a positive, as something that is active, something that happens, a declaration, a reckoning of God's righteousness to us. It is a gift we receive. But to give us the full picture, to have us feel the profundity of this doctrine, Paul speaks now from another angle. He talks about justification by faith in negative terms, in what is absent and missing as a result. Think of it as a ledger, that all your debts are wiped out and you're given unlimited credit. So you say goodbye to the red and hello to green. Now by faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed, credited to our account, given to us. And by faith, we not only renounce our unrighteousness, but God removes it from us. It is no longer held against us. It has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Listen to the language in verses 7 and 8. Blessed, blessed are who are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul quotes Psalm 32, a psalm penned by David himself. And here, what's interesting and curious is David rejoices not in what he has, but what he lacks. That's strange, right? We usually speak about blessing as something we obtain or something we possess, something we can hold on to and feel. We're blessed to have a job we like, a roof over our heads, food in the fridge, good friends to chill with. But here, David's exaltation is not because of his kingly status, his palatial digs, or the good company he keeps. David rejoices in being acquitted. He delights in being declared not guilty. And there is a threefold punch here. If you look at verses 7 and 8, David is saying the same thing, just three different ways forgiven, covered, sin not counted. We do well to learn from him. Why such exuberance and elation? For David, he felt the gravity of his sin. And not just because he committed egregious sins, he did. You know, adultery with Bathsheba, putting Uriah to death. David felt the gravity of his sin, big and small. He assessed and saw them from God's perspective, not his own. You see, that's the game changer we might be able to rationalize, excuse, even justify our lawless deeds. We might vindicate ourselves and say, well, I fell into temptation, but who doesn't? Or I'm impatient today because I didn't get much sleep and that person says something really annoying to set me off. But when we recognize our sins are against God, we see the seriousness of our offense the tiniest peccadillo to the most flagrant transgression is enough to warrant an eternity in hell. Sin against an eternally good and holy, beautiful God merits an eternal punishment. And yet, the good news is that in Christ, we can have impending doom dismissed when we feel crushed by our sin, only to have that burden lifted, then it ought to be automatic. This is the greatest plot twist ever. We can't help but rejoice. So let me ask, do you believe that? Is it visceral, heartfelt for you? Do you believe that as much as you believe in Jesus Christ, that he has borne all your sins The entirety of it, your arrogance and selfishness, your perverse thoughts, your bitterness towards others, your lies and deceit, your jealousy and discontentment, your hot temper, and the list goes on and on, and yet Christ can cover it all. That Christ has taken the bitter cup, and he has drank it dry. Your sins are forgiven, covered, no longer counted against you, because they have been counted against him on the cross. It's called trading places. And all that remains, blessings on mine with 10,000s beside. Justified by faith, there's nothing that can separate you from God in Christ Jesus. And one dimension of blessing is celebrating that things are well. This is what Paul is keying in on here. Think of a peaceful home a good work environment, a close relationship, there is a deep-seated joy to know that you are not at odds with the people you love, that there's no hindrance for greater fellowship and intimacy. How much more with God, the creator of the universe? As John Piper says, God is the gospel. The good news is that you get him. And the blessing of justification by faith is we are no longer at enmity with Him. We are reconciled, restored into right relationship, and that is a cause to rejoice. That is what makes justification by faith so lovely. Now, I know this entire section of Scripture might strike you as basic knowledge. Theology 101. You might think to yourself, well, we'll file this in, the baby Christian cabinet. But we anchor ourselves here in a deep and thorough understanding of the gospel because everything else flows from this fountainhead. Let me just tease out two simple applications as an example and hopefully a springboard to get you thinking through how this can be applied and integrated to your life. First, from this passage, we see justification by faith ought to cultivate humility. I mean you read this these verses and it's clear we're robbed of any reason to boast in ourselves. If Christianity hinges not on what we do but what God has done, our inclination should not be towards pride but praise. As Jonathan Edwards had a way of with words he said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Like, dang, blasted, right? Faith in Christ, therefore, is the posture of the desperate. And what right does a beggar have to brag? Salvation is a gift that humbles. And if this gift is so central to our faith, then humility ought to characterize our lives. Should it not? That we of all people should be those marked by humility. That he must increase and I must decrease. Second, I think this also leads to another fruit. This humility born from justification by faith should produce obedience. Let's not complicate this more than it needs to be sure the details may look different from situation to situation from person to person but the mechanics of the christian life really they're not that complicated we just make it complicated what god says we obey it's that simple and sure this may not happen without great costs it may not happen without awkward glances persecution from the world it may not happen without pain and suffering But the heartbeat of Abraham, David, and for us as Christians today, should be very similar, very simple. What God says, we obey. And the buck stops there. This has always been the pattern, whether God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, or he calls us to sacrifice our time, our preferences, our resources. Whether God calls David to confess his adultery and murder, or he calls us to repent of our lusts, of our anger, of our hidden sins. You see, peel back the outer layers, and you find the same seed within every true and trusting Christian. That a pattern has been established since the beginning. That we are justified by faith, and so we live by faith. Again, I know that even this application, all of it seems very elementary, but the building blocks are the key to growth. And you might be wondering, why revisit this? Well, it's the same reason we have memorials, so that we don't forget, so that we don't graduate from the gospel, but we rehearse it day in and day out, so that we remember. The centerpiece of the Marine Corps War Memorial is a familiar sculpture. I'm sure you've seen it um, portrayed in movies or just from pictures, but it depicts six Marines raising the U.S. flag on top of Mount Suribachi during World War II. And when you consider the surrounding circumstances of the moment captured, it provokes you to wonder why. Why would these soldiers, in the heat of battle and bloodshed, under artillery blast and gunfire, why would they risk their lives to raise a flag? Isn't it just a piece of material with some colors and nice design? Why not just let it fall to the floor? Why jeopardize your life to wave the flag? It's because in the midst of waging war, the troops need to be reminded of why they are fighting, what it's all about, what it's all for. And today, Christian, it's no different. Because metaphorically speaking, there are many flags we can raise. We can raise our job titles, our political party affiliation, our bank statements, virtue signaling. But in this passage, Paul cuts through all of them to raise the banner of Christ, to fly justification by faith so we don't forget who we are, what we're about, and what it's all for. That as Christians, this is what we rally around. This is what we live for, and this is how we live life. Let's pray. Father, it is no more appropriate than to repeat the words of David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. For in so doing, we are brought into right relationship with you, that we can know you, that we can savor a relationship with Christ. We can understand what we've been designed for and commissioned to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, for it is by the gospel that we have life. We pray that would instill within us great gratitude and humility that our response would be to obey for that is the pattern that has been established and set forth and we pray that we'd be faithful to that end. Uh, We need your help not only for for repentance and faith for salvation but in our sanctification in, in the progress of growing to become more and more like Christ and in following him. We thank you for this time. We pray that your word will continue to work upon our hearts that you might be honored and esteemed. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.